0: Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 John 2. The essence of following Christ. <clears throat> um, 1 John, as we have studied it, is a book that is very much so geared toward believers. And I say that tonight, remind you of that tonight, because the message I'm teaching, I'm giving tonight is very much geared toward. Believers, and so I am preaching, and and all of First John is again kind of this way. Um, it's a very much so a believer-oriented book, wh- whereas all uh, almost almost the entirety of the of the epistles is in fact, geared toward those who are believers, written to believers, most certainly uh, geared for believers. There, there's a great deal of it that is accessible at face value to the unbeliever. First John, not as much so. As a matter of fact, it's been the idea of thinking about it in the context of an unbeliever that has gotten so many people in trouble as they've tried to interpret First John. So as I say what I say tonight, um, I say what I say with the particular uh, context of speaking to those who are already in the faith because John is very much speaking to those that are already in the faith and and today actually kind of begins what we might consider to be the actual true content of First John, to this point, we might consider First John 1 one through First John two two to be as it were, introductory material, foundational material, and now we 're stepping into the content of the book itself. We 've contemplated together john 's purpose, founded in a purpose uh, 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 that founded that purpose, excuse me, in a direction, rooted that direction in the truths of christ 's love, and now we dig into what fellowship with Christ looks like in order that we can find that joy that John has been talking about. And this is exactly where we begin today. We're just going to jump right into 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, where the Bible says this, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. So we step directly into the realm here of fruit bearing and confidence. And we see this in the language. Now we haven't talked about it too much yet, but First John is really one of those books where some of the natural limitations of the English language uh, perhaps reared their <clears throat> excuse me, their ugly head. So if we say, Herein do we know that we know him, we can recognize in the English language the English language is not limited in the idea of understanding. Uh, knowledge right the the concept of we know that we know him if we think through what that means um, the It doesn't say hereby we do know him. It says hereby we do know that we know him. And so that first know, hereby we know that we know him is naturally, as we read it in English as well as in the Greek, uh, drawing us to the idea of having a measure of confidence or of evidence, a way that we can, that we can know or that we do know that we know him, so that we know him is the thing, and the, th- the 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 object, and then we have a confidence that we know him, or evidence that we know him by this thing, namely, excuse me, that we keep his commandments. Now we'll come back to that in a little bit, but. What I, I want to do here is I want to peel back the curtain just a little bit on the Greek. And I don't do this all that often, uh, giving you a little bit of a grammar lesson or giving you any of the Greek. We do it a little bit more often, perhaps on a Tuesday night. But I want to peel back the curtain a little bit and let you have a little bit of an insight into what is happening here in First John. And what I'm going to show you tonight is actually not, this is not the first time that First that John has seen this, but it's the first time where uh, there's enough of a distinction between the ambiguity of the English and the clarity of the Greek for me to really want to bring it up. So as we think through what is happening here in the Greek language, in any Greek verb, verb, there are five attributes in a a Greek verb. There's tense, there's voice, there's mood, there's person, and there's number. Now, three of these are very familiar to us as English speakers, tense, person, and number. We use those as well in English, and uh, we have become very comfortable with them. And it's actually the concept of the tense of the verb that we need to understand in order to see what John is saying here. Now, in English, uh, technically speaking, most people will tell you that there are 12 tenses in the English, uh, broken up into three aspects. Uh, some will say 16, some will say six. Uh, it just depends on who you talk to and, 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 and how they are being. And it's kind of the same in the Greek. There's not a full agreement as to how many of anything there are. But in the Greek, there are more or less six tenses. The tenses in Greek relate themselves to the kind of action that is being taken, something that we call the aspect. English, The English language also has aspect. We just don't dig into aspect very often in the English. So the Greek verb has effectively these six tenses, present tense, imperfect tense, aorist tense, future tense, perfect tense, and imperfect tense. You don't need to know this. There will not be a quiz later. But these six tenses are broken up into three aspects, each one of these aspects containing a different focus. There is the linear aspect, and the linear aspect highlights progress. It's a verb that highlights progress. Then there is an undefined aspect. The undefined aspect highlights and an occurrence. And then there is the perfect aspect, which highlights or, or indicates results. So you have six tenses that are broken up into three aspects. And you might surmise correctly that there are two tenses per aspect. So the linear aspect contains the present tense, and the present tense indicates that something is currently happening. The current progress of something, and then there is the imperfect tense, which indicates or emphasizes the past progress of something. Then within the undefined aspect, you have the aorist tense and the future tense, with the aorist tense emphasizing some action, usually but not always in the past. We call it undefined action or undefined past action, and then the future tense indicating undefined future action. And then finally, you have the perfect aspect containing the perfect tense, which indicates a past-completed action with continuing results, or the pluperfect tense, a past-completed action with past results. And I know that some of you are very visual, so here's a visualization of how these tenses relate to each other and how they relate to themselves. Not just a time, in fact, very little of it in the aorist has anything to do with time but also to the kind of action being taken is it a progressive action is it an undefined action is it a completed or a perfect action is it emphasizing the progress is it emphasizing the occurrence or is it emphasizing the results and that's what we really need to think about here is the nature of aspect is it emphasizing progress emphasizing occurrence or emphasizing results. And I give you this little grammar lesson not to confuse you, not to impress you, but to give you a little bit of helpful insight into what John is trying to say here in 1 John. And it's worth it because this tense distinction is going to come up again, and as I've said, it's already come up already. Remember back in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, John said, if we say we have no sin, that was in the present tense. If we say that we are not sinning, if if we say that as a progressive set of actions, we are currently not in the progress of sinning. And then in verse 10, he said, if we say that we have not sinned. And I told you that that was in the perfect tense, emphasizing results, a past completed action with continuing results, the idea that I've never sinned. And so we, we see that distinction has already reared its head, and we'll see this distinction come up again. So I'm giving you this idea now so that as we think about it in the future, we can just seamlessly step into these ideas and similar ideas uh, um, in, in, the, in the coming chapters. So coming back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him. Wow, that no is really not, that second no is not in a great color, is it? I'll work on that for for next time. Um, Hereby, it was not supposed to be that color, I don't think. Um, I was going for something quite different. Uh, Hereby do we know that we know him. So I've given you these two no's, and those two no's are in two very... Very different colors, and that one is deeply distracting to me, even though I'm only seeing it on the screen here. Um, I apologize for for that. I should have uh, checked it on this projector first, made sure the color was good. I've, I've, I've worked hard over the years at making sure the colors are very readable and not distracting and all of that, and I blew it all up tonight. But we'll, we will make do with what we have. Uh, so we have these two no's here, and the first no, hereby we do know that we know, him. And that first no is in the present tense indicating a progressive action. The second no is in the perfect tense, indicating a past-completed action with continuing results, highlighting not the progress but the results. So that first no, hereby we know, we are knowing something. We are engaged in an ongoing process of having knowledge or confidence about something, and this is very similar to the idea that we are indeed presently confident. Hereby we are in a present state of knowledge or a present state of understanding, a present state of confidence. And what is the thing that we are in a present state of confidence about? That we know him. And this know is in the perfect tense. Past completed action with continuing results. So think through this with me. John is saying that there is a way that we can have confidence in the fact that we have known him. That being the context of Jesus Christ. That, that's the person that we know, right? That's the him. Know him in this perfect tense sort of a way, in the past completed actions with continuing results sort of a way, in a results-focused way. And as it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ, the idea of a past completed action with continuing results is somewhat accessible to us. There was a time when I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. That was a moment in time. And then at that moment in time, old things passed away. All things became new. I was placed into a new uh, uh, relationship with the Lord through Jesus Christ. I was made a new creation in Christ. And now I am on a new path. And there are continuing results that are, in fact, the result of that path that I am now on. And we've talked about what it takes to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We spent the last couple of weeks talking about that in First John 2, 2. First talking about the gospel, then talking about the fact that that gospel is accessible to the whole world, that um, uh, the, the atonement that we see in the gospel is not a limited atonement, but is a, it is indeed an unlimited atonement, as First John 2, 2 assures us. But the gospel tells us that salvation is by believing on the finished work of Jesus Christ alone to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that I will always feel saved, though, does it? And the question is, is there a way that I, as one who has made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, is there a way that I, one who thinks back and recognizes that there was a moment in time when I accepted Christ as my Savior, when I believed on the gospel, Is there a way that I can actually have confidence that I am born again? Can I know that I know him? And this is not a flippant question, is it? I believe I I, I can fairly confidently say that among the family groups that are represented here today, Probably every family group, every group here, knows somebody who struggles as it relates to confidence in their salvation, knowing that they know Him. So this is an important question. Must I just trust upon my memory of a past action? Is that the only way that I can know that I know Him? Well, thank God it doesn't say hereby we know that we know Him if we remember our profession of faith. Must it be that I have a date in my Bible or a baptism certificate on my wall and that is my confidence? Well, thank God it doesn't say hereby you know that you know him when you remember the date of your salvation, when you wrote it down, when you had your baptism certificate on your wall. Well, if I don't have those things, am I utterly confounded about whether or not I am a believer? And even as it is, I struggle to truly know whether or not I've believed enough or know enough or meant it enough when I receive the truth of the gospel. Those are other things that we hear of quite often. I wonder if I believed enough or uh, I'm learning more about the gospel all the time, so could I actually have known enough back then to have accepted the gospel? All of these questions come to people's minds. And then here John writes in 1 John 2, 3, Hereby we do know, present tense, we are knowing, we have confidence that we, perfect tense, have known him with continuing results. And that confidence comes when I keep his commandments. Now let me pause for a minute and add clarity rather than conf- confusion to this idea. Remember what we've learned already. First John is a book of context. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We know, we know, we know, we know. As much as we know that what John is saying right here is what John is saying right here, that we know that we know him when we keep his commandments. We also know that what John is not saying is that the mark of a true believer is that he does not ever sin. We know that because 1 John 1 already settled that for us. He is not saying here that you never, that you never sin. And if you, if you do sin, you're not a believer. Don't forget about where we have been simply because we've moved on in our context. And by the way, it was only a few verses ago. It's been a little while. <laughs> That's my fault. But it was only a few verses ago if you were actually just reading, reading the book, right? Instead, what do we know that John is talking about here? Fullness of joy, right? Well, do you know who I am sure, 100% certain, does not have fullness of joy? The person who is constantly struggling with whether or not he's actually a believer. I was talking about this a little bit after our message last week. When you interact with people who are absolutely struggling with this question of salvation all the time, and it's a constant struggle on their minds. And if you're in this place, I'm not saying this to belittle you or to shame you or to make you feel as though uh, you're... you're you, you, um, you're a bad Christian or, or you, you have a problem with you. This is a common thing, but it's not something that, you, that God intends for you to live in. God does not intend for you to live in this place where you in, are in constant doubt, constant fear, constant concern about whether or not you're in the faith. And when we do live in that place, do you know what we can't do? We can't grow. God can't progress us in our faith if we are constantly relitigating the beginnings if we are constantly stuck again and again, turning, grinding the wheels of whether or not we're a Christian, how is it possible for us to progress and to be used of him? But he says we can know that we know him. And later on in the, in the book of 1 John, he will say these things are written that ye might know that you know him. That you can have confidence that you are in him. Do you want to have that confidence that you are in Christ? Do you want to experience the fullness of joy that we're supposed to have when we sing those songs like there's joy in serving Jesus and oh it is wonderful to be a Christian and victory in Jesus which I think we just sang this morning, right? No, faith is the victory. I was close. When we sing those songs These are songs of joy. And we sing those songs, but but in your heart, do those things resonate or don't they? And with all your heart, you know that Jesus Christ is your only hope for eternity. You've fallen at the feet of the cross of Jesus Christ to be saved, but you aren't experienced that kind of confidence that says, yes, I am a believer. Yes, I see these marks of redemption. I see passion. I see the love. I see the confidence. I see the joy. And if you don't see those continuing results, Your Christian life doesn't feel very Christian. It may not look it on the outside, and you who knows your heart knows that it it doesn't look it much on the inside either. And John introduces us to the beginning of the solution. When does a believer have that confidence that they are in the faith? Remember, we're not talking about direct If you don't do this, you aren't in the faith, but rather confidence that you are in the faith. Verses 4 and 5. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. The man that says, I know, and this is that perfect tense, know, past completed action with continuing results, Jesus, But doesn't keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Okay, there's two ways that we can focus on this idea. We can say this. The man who says, I have come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and I am living in those results. But he does not keep Jesus's commandments. Never knew him is not saved or we can say that the man who has come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and is living in those a man who says that he has come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and is living in those results but is not keeping Jesus's commandments is not actually living in those results and if you remember what i said about the past te- uh, the, the, the perfect tense it's in That third aspect, the uh, linear aspect, is focusing on progress. The undefined aspect is focusing upon occurrence. And then that perfect aspect is focusing on results. So I contend that what John is saying here is not that first idea that if you say that you know him, but you're not keeping his commandments... That you don't, that you're not actually saved. I don't think it's saying that. What I think it's saying is if you say that you know him, in other words, that you are living in a knowledge of him, that you are living in the results that this past completed action bought for you, but you are not keeping his commandments, you're not actually living in those results. And this is something that Christians do all the time. They say, I'm a believer and because I'm a believer and we sing all of these songs, there's joy in serving Jesus and oh, it is wonderful to be a Christian, but it's not wonderful to be a Christian and I'm not getting any joy in serving Jesus, that must mean that this whole thing is fake. No, it simply means you're not living in the results because you're not doing what is necessary to, gain, to glean the results. If you're not doing what you're supposed to to get the results, then don't expect the results. If you're not experiencing the results, then there's some reason why you're not experiencing the results. John believes his readers are born again. We've made that very clear. The natural contextual understanding of this is that John is telling them that they are fooling themselves if they believe that they are in fellowship with Jesus Christ and bearing the fruit of that fellowship if they are not keeping Jesus' commandments. They are misrepresenting what it means to serve Jesus Christ if they say, yep, I'm serving Jesus Christ, I'm in fellowship, I know him, while simultaneously they are walking outside of his commandments. And then they say, well, why am I still unhappy? Why am I still depressed? Why am I still uh, 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 struggling in, in, in all of these ways that the world around me is struggling? I, I'm a Christian. I go to church. Why am I still struggling? Well, if you're still struggling, there's a reason. And it's not because God has failed. And it's not because God's system isn't accurate. It's because you're not aligned with God's system. And in this way, we find an essential Christian truth that the blessings of Christ in this life are not by default. They do not by default rest upon every person who has a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The blessings of Jesus Christ, much to the contrary, will rest most fully upon those who are walking with Christ. So verse 5 goes on to give this contrasting statement. Whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know, we, we are knowing, right? That's the progressive idea, that we are in him. The man who keeps Christ's words is the man that the love of God expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross. In this man, excuse me, the love of God that was expressed through Jesus Christ on the cross, the love of God that was promised through his Holy Spirit that Jesus sent to comfort our hearts In this man, that love is perfected, completed, brought to full fruition. And if you're not experiencing that perfection of love, if you're not experiencing that fullness of joy, if you're not living in these things, the abiding contentment and the confidence given by God, which resides above all circumstances, then the first thing that you need to do is take an inventory of Jesus' commandments and the way that you have chosen to live your life. Do you have a habit of lying? Don't be surprised if you aren't experiencing Christ's fullness if you're living in habitual lying. Do you yield to your temper? Are you in a habit of getting angry? Don't be surprised when you don't have fullness of joy. Are you enslaved by lust? Pornography Covetousness Materialism You may have God's love Unto eternal life But don't expect that eternal life To be manifest in you In its fullness today Don't expect to have fullness of joy Are you living in bitterness Or resentment Unforgiveness Toward past wrongs in your life Committed against you Committed against those you love Committed against Your identity group God's love cannot be perfected in you. i Christian. John does not write this, nor do I say this today, in order that you might be made to feel bad or to be overwhelmed by the weight of your circumstances or sin. And you and I know, again, because it was only six verses ago, that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as I say this, as I have articulated this idea that maybe you are not experiencing fullness of joy and you're confused as to why, and I have told you thus this evening that the reason as to why you're not experiencing this fullness of joy might actually be because you're living outside of His commandments. And if you feel the weight of that upon your shoulders and you say, wow, pastor, you're really not making me feel very good about myself tonight. I have some good news. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness and then it's gone. And it doesn't have to weigh you down anymore. And it doesn't have to be a burden on your heart because you can confess it and you can forsake it. And God will take it away. And as I've said these words, perhaps you've heaved under the realization that the reason you aren't experiencing the joy and the victory of the Christian life is because you're living in some measure of sin and you're returning to that sin time and time again and you're residing in that place of sin. And even when you try to dig out, you aren't fleeing to the cross of Jesus Christ through confession to be forgiven and then submitting to the love of Jesus Christ to lead you out of that place of sin. But rather you're trying to maybe discipline your flesh into some conformance to a set of rules that you think God will be pleased with, living in some form of godliness, but denying ultimately the power of the Spirit of God in your life to do this great work in you. And Christian, if you say that you are living in fellowship with God, if you say that you're living in joy, if you say that you know Him, that you are living in the results of a past completed action of having accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, as 1 John chapter 2, verse 4 says, if you say that you know Him, but you are not in that place, you are not keeping His commandments, you're lying to yourself. And by the way, if I say to my children, I know him and I'm not keeping his commandments and there's no joy in me, my children are going to look at that and say, is that what it means to know him? Because you have just told me that you are living in the completed results in the results of a past completed action, that you accepted Jesus Christ. These are the results of Jesus Christ, but I don't see anything in you that is any different or unique. And maybe our church is living this way where we represent ourselves to the community and we say, come to Christ so that you can live in the results and we can sing songs like, oh, it is wonderful to be a Christian and there's joy in serving Jesus and victory in Jesus. And then they come in and they say, this is victory. Is this victory? Because they don't see it in us. This is joy? Because they hear gossip and bickering and arguing and back and forth. And they say, you say that you know him and if this is indeed knowing him, then there's nothing special about knowing him. When in fact, if we say that we know him and we're not keeping his commandments and we're living in bickering and we're living in, in anger and we're living in unforgiveness, we are simply a liar and his word is not in us. And that's a hard truth to swallow, but it's actually a liberating truth. Why? Well, because of 1 John 1, 9, because of confession, because it means that there's somewhere to go and that place to go is up. It means that there's a way to that joy. It means there's a way to that place, to that place of rest, to that place of joy, to that place of victory in Jesus. And if we say we're living in fellowship, the Christian life as it is intended to be lived, but we're not keeping his commandments, we're fooling ourselves, but we're also depriving ourselves of the thing that God intended for us. Much to the contrary, though, if we confess our sin, if we keep his word, not through carnal discipline, but through spiritual submission, the love of God will be able to perfect its work in you. And as the love of God perfects its work in you, you will become what God intends for you. Namely, you will have fullness of joy. When the love of God is doing its work and you rest assured of this, you will know, this is the other side effect, you will know, you will have that confidence that you know him. That you have those results because you're living in them and they are the results that God promised. John culminates this thought in verse 6. He that saith, he abideth in him ought himself also to walk, so to walk, excuse me, even as he walked. I love the simplicity of this concluding thought. I believe it actually interprets what I've just spent all of this time uh, trying to help you interpret the perfect tense of, of, of th- this word no, the form of knowledge for us, so that we can figure out exactly what John's saying. And to be quite honest, if little old lady who reads her Bible every day for the past 50 years uh, w- was, was sitting here and listening to Pastor Wickler, she could come up afterwards and say, you know what, Pastor Wickler, you had all that really interesting Greek stuff, and I really liked it. But it sounded like everything that you said in that really interesting Greek stuff was just what 1 John 2, 6 says. And I'd say, you know what, ma'am, you're absolutely right. I could have just read 1 1 John 2, 6 in English, and it would have been enough. But 1 John 2, 6, a man who claims to be abiding in Christ ought so to walk as Jesus walked. It, that's, that makes it really simple, doesn't it? If you say that you're in fellowship with Christ, if you say that you know him, if you say that you abide in him, it stands to reckon you'd act like him. And if you aren't acting like him, then it stands to reckon you're probably not walking like Jesus walked and you're probably not abiding much in him. John then continues in verses 7 and 8. Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning. The old commandment uh, is the word which ye have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. So in verses seven and eight, we witness a transition to a second idea that is also essential to the concept of fellowship. So maybe you're sitting there and you're saying, well, pastor, here's the thing. I'm not necessarily in fullness of joy. Uh, I I am struggling with some of these things as well. However, I am keeping his commandments. I'm I'm seeking to obey the Lord. Okay, well then, let's, let's continue along the path here. John tells them, That he has something for them, an old commandment, something which isn't at all new. As a matter of fact, this old commandment is an idea which goes all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, which says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. If we love God, we will keep his commandments. That's the old commandment. That's the one that we just read. If you love God, you keep his commandments. If you want to abide in him, you keep his commandments. If you say you know him and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar and the truth is not in you. But if you are in fact living in that place, if you are keeping his word in this man, the love of God is perfected. All the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, we see this concept. And of course, I could take you to all sorts of passages, Old Testament, New Testament, to encourage you to know God by keeping his commandments. The Psalms are full of them. The prophets are full of them. But then John says something different in verse 8. He says in 1 John 2, verse 8, Again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shineth. So now John is not actually giving them a brand new revelation here. Rather, he's using this language of a new commandment to invoke in their lives An extra step in the Christian faith. Keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ is kind of the baseline for being the follower of God, really of any God. The baseline for following any God is that you keep that God's commandments. Whether that's our God or whether that's a pagan God, To be quite honest, a baseline for following a God is that you keep that God's commandments. If you don't keep that God's commandments, it's really hard to believe that you're actually following that God, right? There is no devotee of any system who can say that they are a devotee of that system if they don't follow the system. And people do this all the time. It's foolish and it makes no sense, but people do this all the time. As a matter of fact, it's, it's why we have a measure of confidence in a bunch of the snake oil salesmen that we hear on a day-in, day-out basis uh, in, on the national level. This is why we laugh when the powers that be tell us that the world is going to be destroyed by global warming at the same time they're buying beach houses on the coast. If you're going to be a devotee of your system, at least believe in the system. Don't go flying around in private jets all around the world to tell people that, that the coasts are going to are going to be underwater in a few years and buying beach houses if you want us to believe that you believe this stuff. It's why we roll our eyes at the cults whose leaders make insane demands of their followers in the name of their God while not doing any of it themselves. It's why nothing that I have said thus far about obeying Jesus's commandments should have been anything startling to us because it's quite simple that if I claim to be walking with God, then I should walk with God. But when Jesus walked on earth, he taught another commandment. And when John writes here, a new commandment, I give unto you, I write unto you, he is invoking language which he's used before, which he's written down before, from his account of Jesus' life. So Jesus said in John 13 34 and 35, a new commandment I give unto you. And John is connecting us to John 13 here. This is what he's doing. A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. So the old commandment, this is something, when we talk about Judeo-Christian culture, the old commandment is as much Judeo as it is Christian. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And those we saw, we can see in the Gospels that the Pharisees figured out the second great commandment as well, love thy neighbor as thyself. And yet as we see this idea, it is greatly heightened by Jesus within his ministry. Jesus told his disciples that he has something very new for them, that they would love one another, not as themselves, More than that, that they would love one another as Christ loves them. And this is different, isn't it? Love your neighbor as yourself, okay? And there's a couple of different ways that that one can interpret that idea. Love your neighbor in the same way that you would love yourself. And and Paul would go on to say, for no man uh, hateth himself, right? But cherisheth himself, Okay, very much so. But then when we say, all right, love others as Christ loved us, well, that goes well beyond just how I take care of myself, isn't it? That goes well beyond just self-preservation. That goes to, I will give my life for you. And not only that, but then Jesus tells them in John 13, not only is this the commandment that as he has loved us, we would love one another, but by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have loved one to another. Now, Jesus is not speaking here of loving all men this way per se. Jesus is speaking specifically about loving the brethren. That this is how we treat one another. That as it relates to this new commandment, we still, have, we still have the old commandment, right? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. We still have that idea. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That doesn't go away in the New Testament. But this new thing, love one another as Christ loved us. Treat one another in the brotherhood, in the church, in the manner that Christ has treated you. And Jesus says, by this shall others look at you and know that you are mine not even if you love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. That's not what he says here. Not necessarily even that you love your neighbor as yourself, but that you have this love one toward another. Jesus would go on to say, in his great message of abiding, in John 15, verse 12, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you, okay. So once again, there is absolutely no mystery as to where John is going here or where it is from. So we read in verses nine and nine through eleven: He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his. Eyes. The man who says he is walking in fellowship with Christ but hates his brother is in darkness. Not in light, And let's take a moment to remind ourselves what the word hate means here. The word hate in our Bibles does not inherently mean an emotional loathing against someone. The idea is, as we would typically use the word today, when we say that we hate something or we hate someone, it is the idea that there is a repulsion or an emotional loathing against that thing or that person. That's typically how we use the word, but that isn't the idea as it relates to the Bible. To hate something biblically is to place it lower in Priority or lower in favor, to reject it for something else. The idea that you hate your brother does not demand in Scripture that, that you actually dislike your brother or that you're emotional, emotionally angry against your brother or you're frustrated against your brother. It is only that you disregard your brother, that you have placed him lower in value or in favor than something or someone else, that you have lowered him in your eyes and elevated something else above him, or that you have rejected him for something else. You have disesteemed your brother. And of course, if there were any emotional loathing, unkind words, dislike and those sorts of things, uh, that action would certainly qualify. But this is best understood by what jo- John goes on to say: "He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. This is important. Notice here that the thing that John uses to define loving a brother and so as he defines as abiding in the light is that there is none occasion of stumbling in him. We see the same exhortation in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, and this helps us set some boundaries on this idea. The Bible says, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. So the idea is this: the idea is that you are not causing a brother to stumble, be that through following you into sin because you're a bad influence be that through causing them to breach their own conscience as a weaker brother, be that through acting in a manner that makes it difficult for your brother or sister in Christ to do what is right, that you are being haughty or you are being angry or you're being unkind or you're being selfish or you're being proud or you're being greedy. Have you ever dealt with someone before? And as you've interacted with that person, you've walked away saying, it is so hard for me to keep a right thought in my heart after interacting with this person. That they are so selfish, that they are so greedy, that they are so proud, that they are so demeaning, that they are so whatever it might be, that I actually am welling up within me a kind of anger or a frustration or a bitterness in my heart toward them. If we interact with our brothers and sisters in Christ in that way, we are placing an occasion of stumbling before them if we are doing wrong by a brother or sister in Christ, if we are defrauding a brother or sister in Christ, if we are going back on our promises to a brother or sister in Christ, any of these things are means by which we are, we are inviting them to sin in their hearts against us, or perhaps to sin in their hearts against another. All of these things would be considered occasions of stumbling. Stumbling. The mark of a man who loves his brother is the mark of a man who does as Jesus says. He loves his brother as Jesus has loved him. Jesus gave himself for me. So the man who loves his brother as himself will give himself for his brother. Now again, we do not see here Jesus placed this standard upon every single person in the world. Love thy neighbor as thyself is the standard that we have for our neighbors. Who is my neighbor? Good Samaritan, parable of the Good Samaritan, right? We get that. Your neighbor is the people nearest to you. This is about the brethren. Coming back then to the warning, John says in verse 11, He that hateth his brother is in darkness, walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. The man who does put an occasion of stumbling, a means by which uncharitably to cause his brother to stumble in their faith in in one way, shape or or, or, or fashion. And this could take many different forms. The man who does not elevate his brother, regard his brother, love his brother, serve his brother as Christ has loved, elevated, regarded and served him. Even if he likes that brother in Christ, even if he gets along with that brother in Christ, he may even think he's doing his brother in Christ some favor as he does this thing that ends up becoming an occasion of stumbling. If he puts an occasion of stumbling in his brother's way, if we do not elevate one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are hating our brother in the biblical definition of hating, and we are walking in darkness. And we are blind to the truth because darkness has blinded our eyes. We are not seeing in the light of Christ because we are not living in the light of Christ. And this is a dramatic warning, Christian. We spent a good deal of time, we have spent a good deal of time on Tuesday nights, talking about judgment, talking about liberty, talking about how we treat one another, talking about the weaker brethren idea, that how the strong must bear the infirmities and the conscience of the weak. Unless we lose perspective on just how important it is that we guard one another, that we care for one another, that we pray for one another, that we hold our brethren in Christ above ourselves, that we think on one another, that we mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice, all of those things that we have considered in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. John warns us that if we are falling short of this, if we are falling short of this kind of regard one for another, you have fallen short of fellowship. And if you have, to this point, searched your heart and said, Pastor, I'm keeping Jesus' commandments, but I'm still not experiencing that joy. I'm still not in that place that the Bible says I ought to be in. I'm still falling short of everything that the Christian life says it ought to be. Well, then the next thing you need to ask yourself after you've taken the personal inventory of your life as it relates to your own sinful choices, right? About uh, as it relates to lying and as it relates to stealing and as it relates to lust and as it relates to covetousness and as it relates to uh, disobedience or dishonoring your authorities and as it relates to, to anger and as it relates to all of these things. And you've taken that inventory and you said, There's no unconfessed sin as it relates to those things in my life, uh, but, but I'm still not there. I still don't have this confidence. I still don't have this peace. I still don't have this. Joy, well, the next thing you need to ask yourself then is how is your relationship to your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, I get along with them all, okay? Good. You come in on a Sunday and you shake hands and everyone's smiling and whatnot. But do you love them as Christ loves you? When's the last time you poured anything into a brother or sister in Christ? When's the last time you prayed earnestly and fervently for them? When's the last time you supported them? When's the last time you cared for them? When's the last time that you truly rejoiced with or mourned with them? When is the last time you bore one another's burdens and so fulfilled the love of Christ? When is the last time? Well, Have you put occasions of stumbling in their way? Have you regarded them? When is the last time you reached out to them in love? Have you ever set yourself aside for a brother or sister in Christ? In any way, are you living in that fashion? Is that the context of your life? That the brothers and sisters in Christ are indeed your priority, so much so that you are going to elevate them above those others We can expend all the efforts that we can seeking to be in a right relationship with God in Christ. But if you aren't in a right relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you're still abiding in darkness. Because this is that new commandment, that great commandment. Pastor, can you give me more examples? I've given you a few. But we've got a lot of 1 John left. We'll, we'll, we'll run across a few more along the way. But really, when it all boils down, it all boils down to this idea. We see those original two great commandments that we've talked about. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, and might. Love thy neighbor as thyself. That's the old commandment. Still valid. An old commandment I give unto you. It's there. But then this new commandment given to us in John 13, this new commandment reiterated in 1 John 2 that we love the brethren. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And there's none occasion of stumbling in Him. In Him, there is no offense. There is no stumbling. There is no time where I will cause my brother or sister in Christ to have a crisis of faith or struggle in the faith because of me. And when we are in that place of fellowship, that place of light, we'll be in that place of joy. And we can rejoice knowing that we're right both with God and with man. But if we aren't there, well, John has given us the steps to take. Check these relationships. The first thing, am I keeping God's commandments? Am I right with God? If you're walking in carnality, if you're walking in sin, don't be surprised when you're not experiencing joy. Don't be surprised when you're not experiencing peace, when you're not experiencing contentment, when you're not experiencing what the Christian life is supposed to be. Don't don't be surprised if you're walking in sin. Get that right. Confess your sin, forsake your sin. Second, how is your relationship with the brethren? Are you rightly related to those in the church? Not just meaning we get along. Are you invested in them? Are you regarding them? Are you loving them? Them. Not are you friends with them? Not are you cordial with them? Not is there, are are you, is at least there nothing wrong with between you and them? No, 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 no. Are you actively loving the brethren? Jesus did not wait for us to love him before he loved us. As a matter of fact, we'll get to there, we'll get there in 1 John 4. We love him because he first loved us. Have you reached out in love? towards your brethren? Do you regard the brethren? Have you elevated the brethren? Have you prioritized the brethren? Are you seeking unto the brethren to edify, to encourage, to to strengthen? Or do you disregard the brethren? Do you scorn the brethren? Do you judge the brethren? Do you shame the brethren? Do you... Ignore the brethren. Do you leech from the brethren, right? Taking everything you can from them, taking all that love you can get, and then just like a sponge, just soaking it all in and leaving them dry, and, and then you just go on your merry way. Well, if that's you, don't be surprised if you're not walking in joy because you're in darkness. Darkness has blinded your eyes. Check those relationships. And then we confess as God has ordained, we forsake our sin, we we relate ourselves properly to one another, and we live in the light. And when we're walking in the light, we have fellowship one with another. The blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us from all sin. We have fullness of joy. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota.